us on this beautiful autumnal Friday afternoon. I drove into the studio, the station here in Northampton from Ashfield, and it was all but breathtaking. It was like uh, the sky was blue, high thin clouds. It was in the low 50s, but I really thought, I'm not going to get that many more days like this, although this weekend I think is going to be really beautiful. I'm also excited because um, I have here in studio... Um, someone I've known for many years in a number of his incarnations, but uh, since 2011, he has been the sheriff of Franklin County. It is Christopher Donnellan who is going to be on your ballots, Franklin County, um, and he's uh, in a very tight race with Mr. and Mrs. Nobody, <laughs> his opponents that don't exist. Hello, Chris. It's me versus blank. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. It's a, I know. been a tough campaign. For, for decades, my wife and I have been counting ballots in Ashfield, our paper ballot system, which I love so much. And it's really interesting to see unopposed people vie to have fewer blanks than the other <laughs> unopposed people. But uh, you are unopposed. I think there's when I look at the sheriffs across the Commonwealth, there's a lot of unopposed um, incumbents who are... There are. Uh, actually, many had primary contests, which is unusual. Right. Uh, but right. those are pretty much over. So... So um, there's so much that I want to talk to you about, and I thank you so much for um, taking time. You, um, I guess the first thing I really want to talk about is uh, your opioid. Um, so I think a lot of your tenure as sheriff has been involved in trying to find solutions to this um, opioid blight, which has uh, decimated so many individuals and families and businesses throughout Franklin County. So uh, if you could... Could you summarize a decade's worth of effort oh, in the opioid gosh. arena? You know, I never saw this coming when I ran for sheriff. Um, what it has really done for me is connected my office, the office of sheriff, to the community where it was never connected that way before. I always say there used to be a moat around the sheriff's office. We never talked to the people out there, and they never wanted to know what we did in there. Uh, but this was such a huge problem, a huge community-wide problem that had such a big impact on the sheriff's office that it really brought us together. Um, but yeah, it. it uh, I, I just want to lead. I forgot to lead with this. For folks who don't know, um, Sheriff Christopher Donnellan was Representative Donnellan yeah. um, for I think four terms. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, for eight years. And during that time, you you were on the um, uh, what was the mental health and mental health and substance abuse committee. Yeah. Yeah. So you, it's not like you did, walked into the sheriff's position without some experience in this. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so this task force came together very generically from the community. Uh, John Merrigan and Dave Sullivan and I uh, put it together, asked folks in the community to, to work with us, and uh, so many people stepped up. We, we broke off into subcommittees, and for, yeah, nearly a decade now, I think we'll be selling, celebrating our 10th anniversary, um, we have been working with providers in the community, people in the community, local police departments, um, to identify uh, ways to, to combat this scourge, to deal with stigma and erase stigma, to really bring the com community to recognizing addiction as a disease and to helping us treat our neighbors. Well, you have people that, uh, who, uh, whose living conditions are totally dependent on you mm. and your staff um, who are incarcerated in the House of Correction, both on the jail side who are awaiting trial on the House of Correction side that have been post-conviction. And many of them suffer from substance abuse. Um, so how does that affect, how does that impact the way you do your sheriff's duty, your guard duty? You know, I think if the greatest single thing that I did to impact the climate and culture of our facility and how we treat people was working with my partner, Ruth Poti, 
Um, Dr. Pote. Dr. Ruth Pote is the medical medical director at the jail, um, medical director at Behavioral Health Network. She gave up her primary care practice to w work with these folks. Um, she did does a lecture on the physiology of addiction, and it, it's must uh, mandatory training for my officers. We do it in our Corrections Officer Academy, and it teaches these people what addiction does to your brain, how it physically changes you, and how difficult it is physically to combat your brain and overcome addiction. So for so long, the, the assumption was that you relapse because you have no willpower, um, because you're a piece of garbage, I mean, whatever, whatever you want to throw out there as the excuse why somebody can't get over their addiction. She, through this science, convinced our people this is not the case. They fight, they try, they fall. We have to help them get back up and combat this thing and treat them with respect and dignity. If, you know, if millionaires in Hollywood can't get over heroin addiction with all those resources at their disposal, how do you expect somebody who has never had supportive parents, who's never had supported family, who can't keep a job, who has no housing, to just magically overcome their addiction? Yeah. So how does this, in a day-to-day -day sense, impact on what happens at the Franklin County House of Correction? So we start your reentry the day you arrive with a risk-need assessment, um, you meet with a counselor, almost like college admissions. They go through your assessment, your criminal history, your behavior, your family patterns, your friends, your marital status, your children, all those things, and then set a course of study for you, individually tailored to you, um, to address any of the issues that you have. You go to our treatment unit, you have a schedule of classes to take, and you phase up. As you complete one group of, 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 of uh, classes, you phase up to the next level, and to the next level, you begin to do job training and vocational training, and all of that work builds up and gets you to minimum security, and then to our post-release folks. I mean, that's a very quick way to, to, to say it, but that can happen from six months to two years, depending on the length of your sentence. And all during that time, you're supported by our staff. You're supported by our treatment people. You have an opportunity to enhance your education with Greenfield Community uh, classes at the jail. Um, and it's all geared towards um, provide, providing you with the tools to get a job, to have an education, to get a place to live, to support uh, and be together with your family. The family connectedness is a big piece of what we do. Um, and that ultimately lends to a new neighbor coming back into the community, prepared to contribute and not to commit crimes. You're here. You know how I feel about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what about um, treatment by drugs, by medication at the yeah. jail? Yeah. We, we started that in 2016 with uh, Suboxone for anybody who came into the jail uh, with a prescription being treated with Suboxone. We used to take them off of it and say, you got to de whatever you're taking, you're going to detox from. And you're also going to detox yeah. from your, your Suboxone. <clears throat> and because Suboxone was considered contraband in a, in a correctional facility. You know, again, this is Dr. Poti helped educate me and our staff that um, if somebody comes to jail with a heart disease on heart medication, we don't make them take, go off of it. So why, if we recognize addiction as a disease, do we make them come off of the medication that they're using to help control their cravings? Uh, and that made perfect sense to me. So we were the first facility in Massachusetts to do it. Uh, and if you come to jail on Suboxone, we maintain you on Suboxone. Since then, uh, 2018, we got a methadone license. Um, we went from just maintaining prescriptions to actually inducing. So anyone who comes to the jail with a history of opioid use or opioid use disorder is assessed and given an opportunity to try either Suboxone or methadone. And for many of them, they've been addicts for a long time. This is a, They don't tend to go to the doctors, right? So this is the first time they've sat down with a physician and been talked to about this option and what it could mean for them and been given an opportunity to try it. And most of them, most of them try it. Most of them do. Yeah. Yeah. And we have, um, how do we measure effectiveness? 
Well, that goes towards the the, the whole recidivism. Um, so we have we well, we had it before COVID. We had interns and folks on staff that were measuring people released from our pretrial unit with Suboxone prescriptions and how many of them stayed on it and were productive afterwards. That research was just starting, and then COVID hit and threw it all out the window. Um, but we, what we measure is recidivism, obviously, um, maintaining jobs, um, maintaining their appointments afterwards with their doctors, um, and a lot of that is done with our post-release workers. We've, we've invested a lot of money in staff outside the jail that stays connected with folks after they're released. For most of them, it's voluntary. Unless you're on probation or parole, any involvement with us after jail is completely voluntary. But we have a large number of well, 80 people who have been released from the jail who have no connection to us by, by law, who stay connected with our staff for support, advice, occasional drop-in, um, just because they want the support. Well, patting the back to them and to your staff, you and your staff. I want to talk about mental health at the jail yeah. as well. I, and and I, I thought long and hard about how to lead this. Um, and um, the, unfortunately, unfortunately, the headlines gave me the, the lead. The headlines on Tuesday came out of St. Louis about a 19-year-old Orlando Harris who brought his AR-15 assault-style weapon into a school for performing arts. He killed a beautiful 15-year-old about to turn 16, uh, Alexandria Bell. <clears throat> he killed a 61-year-old teacher who was everybody's favorite teacher, Jean Kuska. Uh, he wounded several other students, and he, then he was in sh- involved in a shootout, and he was wounded and later died. He left a note, and in the note he wrote, I have no friends, no family. I never have had a girlfriend. I'm totally isolated. I'm a perfect storm for a mass shooter. That's the note that he left in his van before he went out and did this unthinkable thing. His mother had had him involuntarily committed. His mother had called the police exactly one week before and said that she found a gun. This AR-15 was confiscated. The authorities are trying to figure out how he got it back for the shooting. Um, and um, I was thinking, when I was thinking about this question for you, uh, about your focus on mental health, about the intersection between criminal conduct and mental health, that elusive uh, measure we're all trying to find the answer to, who better to ask questions about than a sh- sheriff who's given so much thought to this? Yeah, it's it's a it's a huge challenge. The treatment program that we have in place is actually co- cognitive behavioral therapy. is excellent because it can be used for substance abuse. It can be used for domestic violence cases. It can be used for anger management. Whatever your issue is, it's about sitting down and learning to put a space between an event and your reaction to it. There's many ways to go about that, but that's the major premise of it. Cognitive behavioral you know? therapy. And, and what we're trying to do is, as opposed to the old style of treatment where um, I'm going to take you into a class and teach you why alcohol is bad for you and what it does to your body and why you shouldn't use it and all that, cognitive behavioral therapy actually helps you drill down to what, what event in your life, um, what trauma caused you to, to be in a state where you don't feel like you can be in a room with people without being high, you know? What happened to you at what age? And if we can draw that event out and, and work on it, and deal with it, and help you conquer it, then you have a much better chance of leaving the jail and living your life. Free. That's on, it's off your shoulder. You're free, you're free of that event. And when I'm talking about trauma, for most of these guys, most of these guys, the story is universal. It goes back to kindergarten, first, second grade. Uh, they come home from school, and some guy comes home with mom drunk, and is beating the hell out of her, so I, I'm hiding in the closet all night. And then I get to school, and I'm punished because my homework's not done. Um, and then it just gets worse from there, the abuse, the neglect. 
and then by fourth grade, they're stealing their parents' beer or, or marijuana. By middle school, they're using heroin. And by 18, they've had their fifth quarter parents, and they're getting locked up again. And by 19, they're living at my place. And th- it is a universal story. And I was at an event one day, and someone said to me, if you were the king of the world with all the resources to change the world, what would you do? And, of course, everyone's expecting a police or public safety answer from me. My answer was I would load our public schools with counselors at kindergarten, preschool and kindergarten, because that's the age when you identify these things. That's the age when you can intercept and intersect with the, the treatments that are needed to get these kids beyond those problems. By fifth, sixth, seventh grade, you'd have half the population in special needs that you do now. And by middle school and high school, these kids would have conquered those issues and would be off looking for a, for a life in college. That would be the difference. Um, but we just don't have the resources and the schools don't have the ability to do, to do that. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Sheriff Donilon, running for re-election, unopposed. I'm going to ask him about how he is going to vote on question one, mass fair share, which would <laughs> specifically designate up to $2 billion. I'm getting a lot of laughter here, except that uh, you know where I, I voted feel. yes on question four. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ask you about that one too. Um, but uh, to, to, in order to give more money not just for education, but also for public transportation and and highways. We're going to come back right after this with Sheriff Christopher Donilon. Stay with us. Happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. The top-ranked Massachusetts Minutemen return to the ice at the Mullins Center this Friday for homecoming and a special hat trick-or-treat Halloween. All fans are encouraged to wear their Halloween costumes as the Minutemen take on Merrimack. Puck drops at 7 p.m. UMass hockey tickets can be purchased at umassathletics.com tickets. Or, if you can't make it, listen to all the action right here on WHMP, your home for UMass hockey. 101.5, WHMP. At Greenfield Savings Bank, one of the things we love about living in the Valley is all the locally grown food that's available here. For more than 25 years, a local nonprofit called CESA, which stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, has been promoting locally grown food and supporting farms, farmers markets, and food businesses in our Valley. And to support CESA's mission, Greenfield Savings Bank is giving new customers a CESA canvas tote bag as a thank you gift when they open a new free GSB checking account. There are no monthly fees, no transaction fees, and you get free online banking, free e-statements, free debit card, and free GSB mobile app, including depositing checks from your mobile device. Our existing customers can also get a CISA Canvas tote bag when they enroll in GSB's free mobile banking or sign up for e-statements. So, join GSB and show your support for locally grown food and local banking. Get your CISA Canvas tote bag thank you gift from Greenfield Savings Bank. See bank or visit greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF. What happens in high school stays in high school? Not quite. In fact, quite the opposite. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. High school is a time of discovery of how you'll be in the world. At the Hartsburg School in Hadley, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Hartsburg students take their science studies into the woods, for instance, or the garden, or goat barn. They study history through the lens of architecture, or art, or music. There's time to be young and curious and unhurried. 
High school isn't a race or a contest. It's a journey towards self-determination. Hartsbrook High School students learn they can handle adversity and cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world. Plus, they sing together. Schedule a visit anytime. Visiting day for current 8th graders is this Wednesday, November 2nd, from 8 a.m. until about noon. Spend time with students and teachers and see what high school at Hartsbrook is really like. Things to do with butternut. Roast it with butter and sage, mash it with butter and maple syrup, stuff it with quinoa, kale, and cranberries, and then there's curried butternut soup. Squash. The season is long, the recipes are endless, and River Valley Co-op is a fall festival of squash. Next time you're there, buy that squash you never buy. Kabocha squash or Blue Hubbard squash. Why? Why not? River Valley Co-op. Everyone is welcome, not just members. And everyone is wild about local squash. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. So I am back with Sheriff of Franklin County, Christopher Donnellan. We were, um, we were just wrapping up our conversation about cognitive behavioral therapies. And, and I just wanted to say my understanding is being a good educator um, is like being a good cognitive behavioral therapist, which is you're trying to teach people, not tell them what to think, don't drink, don't commit crimes. You're trying to think, tell them how to think. Pause and think about what you're doing. Yeah. Isn't that and, and help deal with issues that that um, you know can try to control your thinking you know, in a negative way um, and lead to productive outcomes, positive social interactions, pro-social behaviors, things of that nature. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Sheriff, because um, back in the day when I was. Franklin County focused, and when I used to spend too much time in jail, not <laughs> as an inmate, but as an attorney, um, when Sheriff McQuaid was the sheriff, uh, there were, I, I had a couple of female clients, and it was so dreadful, the treatment of females in Franklin County if they were arrested for something, and eventually, pre-trial, they'd spend time in Framingham in these dreadful conditions back then. It was always too hot and filthy and loud, and as if they were as if they killed somebody, and when, yeah. in fact, they were just, you know, charged with some minor disturbing the peace and held in jail in Framingham because there was no place for Franklin County. When when we made enough headlines, there were four, I think it was the ISO unit, down in the isolation yeah. unit, four cells that were made available for females where they were exposed to everybody else. Um, it was dreadful. Um, I think you've tried to change that, right? Yeah. Yeah, we have a pod for women there. They're receiving all the same treatment um, that we do for the men. Um, gosh, we, should, we could do a whole show on, on women in corrections. One of the things that shocked me when we brought our women back from Chicopee was we talk about layers of trauma and, and their impact on their lives. Um, the sexual trafficking, the sexual exploitation of women, almost universal with this population, is just an added layer of trauma. They're so vulnerable. For, 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 yeah, for everything else that they've dealt with. I was shocked by that. Um, so we started specifically working treatment towards that. And one of the women who was released got back in touch with me after she was gone and to tell me her story. And we've actually started a task force in Franklin County on sexual exploitation of women to talk more about this issue and help support women who've had to deal with this. It's a really a horrible situation. Um, but the treatment unit we have in the unit in the jail now for women is, uh, I'm very proud of it. There is one pod, right? Yeah. And it was one of your four pods there? Yes, yeah. And, and what, it, what makes that pod special? It's, well, it's exclusive to them. Um, and they were, they were engaged with the same treatment as the men now, um, which did, it didn't happen before. Uh, the population is, is a fraction of what the men have, so they would get whatever was left over. And um, 
you know, many of the meetings we had in the community, the opioid task force, where we talked about where are gaps in our service, the feedback I continually got was women. Women need the help. They don't have the numbers, so everyone's paying attention to the men. These women need help. So we've refocused our efforts on that. Well, thank you. They certainly deserve e equal treatment. Um, another thing, I guess the final thing, we don't have much time. I, I wanted to ask you about um, staffing. When I went to your webpage, I saw that you were uh, appealing to people to please apply for jobs yeah. as correctional officers. So um, I know that a lot of people are looking for laborers these days. Um, why don't you tell us about, uh, about those positions, what you're looking for, what's involved? Yeah, we're hiring corrections officers right now. Um, if you're intrigued by any of what I've talked about and want to be a part of our team, you know, Google Franklin County Sheriff's Office, uh, Massachusetts, because there's one in Tennessee. You don't want to end up working there. Um, <laughs> um, there's a Franklin County in Ohio, too. Yeah, there's lots yeah. of them. Um, yeah, come call our HR department, and we'll invite you in for an interview, a tour. You can see the facility. You know, there, there are components to it. If you like um, shift work, days, evenings, or nights, um, we have a four-day-on, two-day-off schedule which allows 16 additional days off a year, which is nice. Uh, paid vacation time, state benefits, pension system, all the, all the great things that go along with being a state employee. Um, but they're, they're pretty good paying jobs. It's about 55 grand a year to start. Um, and it's close to home. It's not, not a huge commute from Hampshire or Franklin County. And you'll be part of a team that's really committed to changing people's lives and making our community better and safer. So come What apply. do you attribute to shortage of applicants? You know... COVID really knocked the, the uh, workforce for a loop. Um, we would Five years ago, I would advertise for corrections officers. I'd get 150 applications, and I could easily weed out the bachelor's degrees, and that would be it. Now I post for a position. I'm lucky if I get 25 applications, and you know, we're, we're trying to thumb through them and get people. All you, really, all you need is a driver's license and a high school diploma, and you're eligible to apply. We do all the training. We'll train you. We'll equip you. We'll make sure you're ready to go, so you don't have to worry about any of that. Um, but yeah, since COVID, there's just, I think a lot of people retired, um, and left the workforce. So what was available for, for a workforce kind of filtered into those jobs and the rest of us are scrimping for what's left uh, please come in and apply. In the minute that we have left, what makes it more than a job? That is what's rewarding about being a correctional officer. You know, when someone walks out of the jail after you've spent six months or a year with them and you run into them a year later at big Y and they, and they don't duck and run, they look you right in the eye and they say, my life is better. You know, I'm still sober. That's what does it. And we had a guy who, who was with us and when asked who the, who the best male model was, male role model was in his life, and he said a corrections officer at the sheriff's office. That's when we knew we were doing the job right. It sounds like you're doing the job right. Sheriff, thank you so much. It's Chris pleasure. Donnelly. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Uh, it is my pleasure to see you again and to have you on the show. And uh, he, he will be on your ballot, Franklin County Voters. Uh, it's Christopher Donnellan Donnellan running for Franklin County Sheriff, and uh, good luck. Thanks, Buzz. Good to see you. We're going to be back with Jeff Napolitano. He's going to be talking about the ongoing uh, controversy involving the Northampton uh, schools and COVID protocols. We're going to be back with Jeff and his guest right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Police are asking for the public's help after a hit-and-run accident involving a bicyclist in Longmeadow last night.
The 62-year-old Springfield man was taken to Bay State Medical Center where he was pronounced dead. Police are asking for help identifying the vehicle involved in the accident, which witnesses say may be a dark-colored sedan or crossover vehicle. It was last seen heading south on North Main Street toward the Center Square Rotary in East Longmeadow. Anyone who may have witnessed the accident or who might have surveillance footage from that area around 6.20 p.m. are asked to contact the police or Hamden District Attorney's Office. The Drug Enforcement Administration's National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day is tomorrow. The government is encouraging people to remove unneeded medications from their homes in an effort to prevent medication misuse and opioid addiction from ever starting. Police departments across Massachusetts will be collecting drugs, including tablets, capsules, patches, and other solid forms of medication. Some locations may accept vape pens and other e-cigarette devices. This service is free and anonymous. The U.S. Postal Service is honoring the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg as an icon of American culture with a stamp in the new year. The design, unveiled this week, is a painted portrait based on a photo of Ginsburg in a black robe with an intricate white collar, which became her trademark. Ginsburg died in 2020 at the age of 87. The newly unveiled First Class Forever stamp of the liberal icon will be available for purchase in 2023. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. Sunshine and scattered clouds this afternoon, a high of 54 to 58. Mostly clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 40s, an overnight low of 26 to 32. Bright day tomorrow, sunny, 58 to 62, 64 in a sun cloud mix on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. What are the priorities for our local cities and towns, and how will the upcoming elections affect our cities and towns? Join us when we speak with Northampton City Council Rachel Maori, who will be our guest Monday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Poti. In my practice, I see an average of six people a day with a heroin addiction. They all tell me the same thing. They started out abusing pills. And 70% of the time, they got them from family or friends. Sometimes they were given them, and sometimes they stole them. We have to keep prescription drugs out of the wrong hands. If you're not actively using a medicine, get rid of it. Don't save it for a rainy day. Let's get these drugs out of circulation. This Saturday is Drug Take Back Day. It's happening across the country and locally at over a dozen locations in Western Mass. Drop off prescription drugs, no questions asked. Don't flush them, don't toss them in the trash. Bring them to one of the drop-off locations. Prescription drugs lingering in medicine cabinets leads to heroin use. It's a simple fact. So please, if there are meds hanging around in your house, get rid of them safely this Saturday from 10 to 2. Find a drop-off location near you at the Northwestern District Attorney website. Hello. I'm Sheriff Patrick Kaling, and I'm honored to be the Democratic nominee for Hampshire County Sheriff. I hope you will stay with me and vote Kaling in the general election. Early voting starts on October 22nd, and Election Day is November 8th. And remember, a vote for me is a vote for a kind, compassionate, and progressive future for corrections in Hampshire County. This ad was paid for by the committee to elect Patrick J. Kaling. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome back, those who have been with us, and welcome aboard those who are just coming on. 
Board, it is Friday. It is 4.30. It's time for The Good Thing with Jeff Napolitano. And Jeff, you're going to continue um, WHMP's uh, discussions about the COVID protocol that would be appropriate for our Northampton schools. Um, and you have your own guest today, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, just in terms of the good work I was going to bring on, um, but she couldn't make it somebody who's working on question one and question four. Um, vote yes on question one and question four. Um, here, here. Yes. Um, but so we got a lot to cover. We're going to cover uh, the hot issue in Northampton today. Um, and it's been burning up here at WHMP. It's been burning up in the Northampton School Committee, uh, particularly around protections for students around COVID-19. Uh, and I'm coming f- at this issue as a parent of two students in Northampton School System uh, and a bit of disbelief about what's been going on in the school committee. Um, I just happen to have been observing one of these subcommittees online, and I've been sort of shocked at what's evolved and devolved from it. Uh, but if you've been listening to Bill Newman's show and the afternoon buzz in the last week, as you all should be, uh, you're a little bit more familiar with the issue. Um, we have a local expert, Dr. Megan Harvey, with us. Uh, she is a epidemiologist and an assistant professor of health science at Springfield College. She is the epidemiology consultant for East Hampton and Northampton, who produces the COVID dashboards, uh, and also is a school committee member in East Hampton. Um, so welcome, uh, Dr. Harvey. I'm tremendously grateful that you're here and lending your expertise. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, first, I want to lay out what's been going on in brief, just to get everybody caught up, and then Dr. Harvey can help um, make the distinction of fact from fiction. So if I screw up on any of this, Dr. Harvey, just please interject. Um, in a couple of weeks, the Northampton School Committee will be having a meeting and discussing the results of this subcommittee that they put together to advise them about the school's COVID policy. Uh, the issue is that the state agency for schools, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, or DESE, as those in the know call it, uh, in late, late August, they put out a guidance that stated essentially that they are not recommending or supporting schools in masking, in contact tracing, or testing students for COVID-19. Uh, the exceptions they mentioned are that Number one, schools can buy their own tests if they want, but there's no money from the state for that. Number two, if a student is in the nurse's office or tested positive five days prior, they should wear a mask. But essentially, all of the testing, contact tracing, and universal masking, no matter what the level of COVID in the schools, are now gone according to the state's um, guidelines. Uh, That's what the state guidelines say, roughly. Um, So... A lot of school districts in the state, recognizing that this is the floor, not the ceiling for protecting students from COVID, have decided to implement additional protections. So in Northampton, the school committee back, I think in June, decided to create a subcommittee with medical experts from the area to help figure out things like when universal masking should be implemented, protocols for letting students and families know if they've been exposed to somebody who's positive, and so on and so forth. And that's where this all gets a little hairy. Um, There's one... Uh, committee member, or member, not of the school committee, but of this subcommittee, um, Josh Silver, who was appointed uh, to the subcommittee, he made a motion uh, about a month ago to simply put aside the questions that the subcommittee was charged with answering and state that the DESE guidelines are the same as the CDC. And as a committee, we should all listen to the experts in the state uh, Department of Elementary and Secondary Education And as a city, we should adopt those guidelines as both the floor and the ceiling for Northampton schools. Um, Now, Mr. Silver is not a public health 
or medical professional, and he stated that actually in one of these subcommittee meetings, but over the course of these two meetings, he pushed this, this motion. In the second meeting of the subcommittee, before the motion was voted on, a school committee member actually was recognized and stated that this was not what the subcommittee was supposed to do. Um, despite that, a vote of the committee was held, and Mr. Silver's motion passed and was sent to the school committee, the, the whole school committee. Um, What's the most interesting thing about this motion that's now the hot ticket in debate, and you've probably heard about if you've been listening to the station, is that the two doctors, the only community medical professionals present in this meeting, voted against that motion. And so that motion to, um, to you know, just go by the, the, the floor that's defined by the state in terms of COVID protections, it's now being committed within, within the school committee. Um, if you've looked at the Gazette today, you'll see that Mr. Silver has created a petition to the school committee to adopt the motion that um, he helped pass. So we're going to go through the petition um, and some of the very, uh, for the first three statements I think are the most problematic. But we have an expert here, and I'm also painfully familiar with a lot of this policy and spoken with medical experts, including one in the subcommittee. So we're going to answer a few key questions. Um, the first one is, does DESE policy, the guidelines, fully align with CDC policy? Um, Great question. Yes. It really Dr. Harvey. Not. Um, what's fascinating about it is that the DESE guidelines very specifically don't mention level. The CDC guidelines are very specific that the foundations on what's going on, and they have this sort of new community guide, community level, high risk community, and in high risk community, spread is high and healthcare burden is high. Doctor Harvey, you're cutting in and out just a little bit. I think it's a reception. It might be a little reception issue. Oh, sorry. It's quite all right. Um, all right. Can you hear? Uh, you just cut out a little bit again. Oh, no, I'm trying to talk to you from There's Springfield a, there, College. There it is. There it is. We got you. Okay, great. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, now I can hear an echo of myself. Okay, we, we can't, so go right ahead. Okay, perfect. Uh, so the CDC is very specific about the community level needs to inform what we do. And they have this high risk level where, you know, our, we clearly see a burden on our healthcare system. And in that scenario, we should be wearing masks inside. The DESE policy does nothing to do with this. It has no comment about community spread. Right. Fair enough. Yeah, I actually, I print, you know, I did the most basic thing that I think you could do is print out what the policy says. And there's a whole section about how to respond to outbreaks um, on the CDC website in the policy um, that was just um, uh, released this fall, um, October 5th, actually. Uh, in terms of like how schools should respond to outbreaks. And yeah, so DESE doesn't actually address that, permit that even, uh, a response. Um, uh, uh, yep, great. Okay, all right. We're on the same page and, and that seems to be, that seems to be, we, fi we figured that much out. Um, I mean, there's also things that the CDC talks about like in terms of, you know, good, ventila good ventilation in like testing, particularly surveillance testing, right? Yes. In general, the CDC is far more specific than the DESE policy. The DESE policy sort of says we're aligned with the CDC and then, you know, names a couple of ways that they are. And I think it's true they're aligned. They just don't include all of the detail of the CDC policy. Right, right. Um, 
and it's it's fair to say also that um, I went to the American Academy of Pediatrics, and you know they they echo the same things that um, that the CDC says uh, in terms of you know masking being a way to prevent transmission of of COVID nineteen and that sort of thing. Um, that actually brings me to the second question, and this was raised I think on Wednesday's show, and that is: Do masks does wearing a mask uh, cause or stunt? or damage um, learning or development uh, in children? This is really the hot button topic, right? Um, Masking is not for forever. It's not a good long-term, let's always wear masks. But if we look at the risk-benefit trade-off, we have very clear science about the benefit with masking. We know that it will reduce transmission. And we have very, very little evidence of general harm. For specific individuals, sure, some, some folks can't wear a mask. And that's why these policies are created with exceptions. Um, but in general, like large um, you know, damage to learning or uh, large setbacks for all students, we just don't have any evidence of that. And that seems to be exactly this, the policy that the American Academy of Pediatrics um, tweeted out, uh, actually, on August 26th. They were talking about the, there were so many claims, um, you know, floating around the Internet, um, you know, do masks cause damage and so forth. And they said basically the same thing that you just said on, on August 26th. Um, so yeah. great. It's wonderful to have um, some clarity and some clarification about that. Um, We've got about a minute before we take a break, and so let's delve into question three real, real quick. And that is, um, and this is par- in part because the the petition online has sort of been portraying Northampton as some aberration. Um, do you know of other school de- districts that do more than Desi's guidelines, or is Northampton just some weird outlier? Northampton is definitely not a weird outlier. Um, I can speak from experience in East Hampton, that we have been very um, cautious and used science to mark all of our decisions the entire time. So at least one neighboring community has been um, also very cautious and very careful about following science. Uh, And we know we have examples like Boston um, that also go above and beyond DESE guidelines. The entire time of the pandemic, really, DESE has set the sort of minimum standard, and it's been up to schools to do more and many districts have. Right. Great. Um, all right. We've got to take a break. We are on with Dr. Megan Harvey, uh, epidemiologist, Springfield College. You're listening to the Afternoon Buzz. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 1015 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. 
Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. At American National, what's important to you is important to us. Just like every horse is unique, so is our equine coverage. American National's equine owner's insurance is designed to address the inherent risks involved with owning horses. Flexible enough to provide property and liability coverage for operations of various sizes, yet can be tailored for your specific needs. We're right by your side. For more information, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. Just as I was starting my medical training, I came down with an autoimmune disease that led to cancer. I needed a liver transplant. Fortunately, I got one from someone who registered as a donor. As a physician, I understand the barriers to organ donation. Some people think their organs are too old or just don't want to think about dying. But one organ donor can save up to eight lives. People who register as donors are heroes. And I'm here thanks to my hero. Be a hero. Register at registerme.org. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org this week's Shop Tuesday is Caminito Steakhouse. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Caminito releases certificates for their restaurant in Northampton. A fine Argentinian steakhouse offering sirloin gorgonzola, ribeye, steak tips, and grass-fed filet mignon with potato gratin. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Caminito Steakhouse in Northampton, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back with uh, Jeff DiPolitano. His good thing of the week is we are talking about the controversy involving COVID protocols in our schools in Northampton. Jeff. Right. And so we're, we're talking about the question that's going to come up at the next school committee meeting about whether to adopt um, the sort of bare bones baseline guidance from... And just so people know, the school committee meeting is going to be on November 10th, yes, right? Yes, yeah. There is actually one um, next week, but that's strictly related to a separate issue. But people so, can comment between now and yep, November 10th. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so um, so we've got on the line uh, Dr. Megan Harvey, uh, who is an epidemiologist, uh, professor of public health at Springfield College, uh, and we're sort of identifying some of these questions that have, have come up um, in Northampton in this debate. Um, and so... Um, the the last question that we uh, talked about was, you know, is Northampton an, an outlier in its attempt to come up with something, uh, some protections greater than um, than than just what the you know the minimum that the state gives? And and uh, Dr. Harvey, you pointed out that the Boston Public Schools uh, do. And in fact, I have a printout, a really cool printout um, from my web browser. Um, from the Boston Public Schools, where they have the real-time numbers of uh, CO2 levels, uh, which is you know can be a proxy for you know how much um, you know rebreathed air is 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 in in a room. They have like dozens and dozens of um, monitors in all of their public schools 
indicating essentially the quality of their air. Um, that goes way beyond what Desi says. And in fact, I printed out the Boston Public Schools policy for 2022 and 2023. And you know, they talk about things like masking and PPE availability, obviously ventilation and, and air filters and purifiers. Um, they too have criteria for when masking takes place. So they they um, you know, they say that you know the CDC recommends this at a high community level. The BPS policy is that um, universal masking may be required for certain uh, situations when COVID levels are high and so on and so forth. And so that's another instance, or uh, that's an instance of another school system going beyond sort of that baseline DESE guidance. And I, I don't know if you had any other comments about that, Dr. Harvey. I think that summarizes it. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that um, the school where the, the children of Dr. Ashish Jha and um, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, um, Ashish Jha is the, the COVID czar at the moment, and Dr. Walensky is the, the CDC director, um, actually happened to both go, th their kids happened to go to school in Newton. And um, I looked at the Newton policy, and it's, it's, um, it's you know, not as extensive as the Boston Public Schools, but they do have... Um, a bunch of um, additions, safeguards, protections that they they had done that, for instance, Northampton hasn't done, such as investing, I think it was a little bit north of $5 million in upgraded HVAC systems in their public schools uh, last year. And this was actually something that they bragged about publicly with good and fine reason. Um, and I think it's just another instance of how we could we could cut down on transmission of COVID. And, and I suspect that as a public health professional, you're, you're of the mind that reducing transmission of COVID is generally a, a good thing. A very good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, there, there are people who think, and, and this has been alluded to, I think on Wednesday about how, you know, pe kids have immune systems and they should get exercise and so on and so forth. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Well, that's true. They do have immune systems and they, can be generally healthy and get exercise, but that really doesn't have anything to do with what we know so far about this virus. This virus has not acted like any other virus we've had so far. Um, I have heard all of the, um, I don't know, thoughts about, oh, it's just like the flu or for children, it's not a big deal. And the reality is, is that it is a big deal. Uh, it's not the flu. It's killing far more people in our country than the flu. We're very lucky um, in Massachusetts to be fairly well vaccinated, but our children are not that well vaccinated. Um, I was just looking up vaccination rates in Northampton just so I would kind of know what I was talking about here. And I think about 22% of Yikes. zero to four-year-olds and maybe up to about 80% of five to 11-year-olds, but fairly low rates for our youngest kids. Yep. And we just don't know what that is going to mean yet for things like long COVID and later chronic disease risk. Mm. Avoiding infection is definitely the preferred option. And I, I think the timeliness of all of this is important as well, because I, I, it was the Biden administration that estimated a, a couple of months ago about up to 100 million people having getting uh, contracting a case of COVID just this fall and winter itself. Is, is that around is that ballpark, right? Yeah, it's so hard to estimate. We used to have fairly good uh, idea of how many cases there were. And now the number of cases that we report on the dashboard is just such a vast underestimate. It's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. It's only people who are sick enough. If you test at home, 
you don't not better. You just yep. That, do that, not count it. <laughs> that actually the 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 fact that they've and not just in schools but in other places as well sort of dismantled surveillance testing test seeing you know I remember back you know in the day Doctor I think it was Doctor Fauci or certainly public health professional talked about how you have to be able to tell where the virus is in order to to pre- prevent it from tr- being transmitted and to prevent, you know, disease and, and God forbid, death and that sort of thing. And it seems like not just in schools, but certainly across the state and, uh, and you know, by the federal government as well, a, a lot of the surveillance testings has just gone away. So we don't, we're sort of, I mean, is it fair to say that we're sort of blind, or at least we're more blind in terms of where COVID is now than we were, say, a year ago? Absolutely, without question. We do have things like wastewater surveillance data, and that can help us get an idea of it. Mm-hmm. And the Hampshire County data is really telling. Uh, our wastewater data is very high, and our confirmed cases just don't rise and fall with the wastewater anymore. And it's the exact illustration of your point that we just don't know anymore. We, yeah. we have absolutely no idea what our actual infection rate is in the community. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Megan Harvey, who is an epidemiologist and public health professor from Springfield College, uh, and we're talking about the upcoming uh, debate in the school committee on um, pr- the protections that uh, are going to be afforded students in Northampton schools. The last question I wanted to get to is just, is Northampton going against public health professionals and others for trying to provide more protections and mitigations than what DESE uh, states? Oh, absolutely not. It's such a strange place that we're in right now where uh, policy is getting made by folks who are not public health experts. And if you ask public health experts and epidemiologists, you know, what are we supposed to be doing? And if you look to them, you know, are they in these meetings wearing masks? Yes, they are still. Um, And that's very telling. Yep. It's I'm I'm unfortunate or fortunate enough to be on Twitter a lot and um, public health Twitter is sort of like screaming their head or has been screaming their heads off for quite some time at the moment. Um, and it's, yeah. it's really crazy to see that sort of the, the difference between what the state and what the government is doing and what public health professionals are saying. Um, I mean, it's really interesting because our own state senator, um, Senator Joe Comerford, um, was the, the chair, uh, is still the chair of the Joint Committee of, on COVID-19 and Emergency, Pre- Emergency Preparedness and Management. Um, and their, their committee got experts from the state uh, to testify for over a year. And then in June, this past June, they put out a report. Uh, and they had, let's see, 16 total um, uh, policy and regulatory recommendations for the state um, and some of them were, for instance, number seven was invest and prepare for contact tracing. Um, number eight was fund contact tracing efforts by investing in local public health. Um, number 11, improve data gathering and release by the Commonwealth to make it more transparent, readily admissible, blah, 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 blah. 13 was to utilize anchor dates and triggers thresholds for emergency planning, response, and recovery to include masking, incidentally. And number 15 was to improve indoor air quality in schools and other public settings. And so it's not like our elected officials actually haven't been doing anything. This committee that our state senator convened actually spent a lot of time, hours and hours, listening to experts and came up with this recommendation. And it seems that it's dead on arrival. Um, it, it unfortunately hasn't, it certainly hasn't been taken up by the Baker administration. Um, and it, it doesn't seem to be a big priority right now, just in general. Um, and um, I think 
Uh, I wonder what you what you think about that. Yeah, I, it's <laughs> we have been yelling into the void. It feels like for a little while, and in the past couple of weeks, I'm putting out these dashboards and, and trying to convey the information that we're actually seeing the increase in front of us. We've gone from a low risk to a medium risk uh, county, and the fatigue is just more than ever. And, and I get it. I mean, me too. Um, but the nuance of this masking and mitigation strategy is that let's take the masks off when we can, and then let's put them back on when our hospitals are getting full. And we have to worry about this. We have to be able to adjust both directions. Great. Well, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Megan Harvey, uh, public health professor and epidemiologist at Springfield College. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I think we've we covered most of the bases. Both. We have. So the school committee will be meeting on November 10th. And I, I just want to say WHMP has been trying to cover this. We haven't had both sides on at the same time. We've heard very articulate voices like Megan Harvey's. Uh, Josh, Josh um, Silver was on uh, Bill Newman show um, for, I think, six minutes about a week and a half ago. And then we had Michael Stein and Joe Pater on the Bill Newman show speaking for the position that Megan Harvey is taking right now. We had the chair of brain sciences, Dr. Adrian Staub was on. He took a, the opposite position, the one that Josh Silver did. If we're going to talk about this again on either the afternoon buzz or in the Bill Newman show, my recommendation is let's have both on at the same time. But I am very grateful to you, Megan Harvey, for coming on. Jeff Napolitano, as always, interesting and informative and important segment. Thank you all. Everybody have a great weekend. It's going to be terrific weather. We're not going to have too many more like this weekend. So enjoy it. And we'll see you on Monday on the Afternoon Buzz. Happy talk. Keep talking. Happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Live and Grab local a hammer, news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Hampton Radio Group Station.